Take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Galatians, Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. We are actually in between uh, some sermon series, and so we are going to just, this is a standalone today, we're going to talk through a passage in Galatians. I felt the Lord lay on my heart earlier this week as I was praying through and thinking about this morning and excited about what God's going to share with us today. And so Galatians chapter 5, I saw this quote this week that was written 500 years ago by Martin Luther. He said, faith is a living, bold trust in God's grace, so certain of God's favor that it would risk death a thousand times trusting in it. Such confidence and knowledge of God's grace makes you happy joyful and bold in your relationship to God and all creatures. And the Holy Spirit is the one that makes this happen through faith. Because of faith, you freely, willingly, and joyfully do good to everyone, serve everyone, suffer all kinds of things, love and praise the God who has shown you such grace. Thus it is just as impossible to separate faith and works as it is to separate heat and light from fire. Martin Luther, in the midst of that statement, talking about the joys of our faith and what it comes with it, says that the Holy Spirit is the one that makes it happen. If we're honest with ourselves, Christians in churches like our own don't really know what to do with the Holy Spirit a lot of times. We know He's there. Person of the Trinity, one of the three in one. We're just not sure what that means for us. We relate to Him. We talk about the Spirit. We talk about spiritual things. We talk about things that are related to the Spirit. But if you were to ask somebody in the circles that I have grown up in, are you in touch with the Spirit? You never know what kind of answer you're going to get. What that means. What that looks like. Well, I guess, I don't know, what does that, what does that mean? Galatians 5 is written to show us that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, plays a huge part of our spiritual development. And if we want to be what God has called us to be, we must be in tune with who the Spirit is and what He does. We can no longer allow him to be, as Francis Chan quoted in his book, the forgotten God of our existence. And so today we're going to look at Galatians chapter 5, but I'm going to actually start a little bit before that. Because you see, the book of Galatians, it's going to be hard to understand what Paul is teaching us in Galatians 5 if we don't understand what he's been teaching for the first four chapters. And we haven't had several weeks to kind of go over that. So I want to give you a a quick synopsis, read a passage at the end of chapter 4, and then we're going to launch into chapter 5. Galatians is written to a group of churches, to people in church, that had had Paul come and share their faith with them. They committed their lives to Christ. They were following Christ, and then as would often happen, after Paul left, a group of people would come in, a group of men, they called them, they've been called the Judaizers, would come in and say to people, Paul gave you part one. Here is the rest of the story. 
the rest of what you have to do. And so, yes, Paul told you, you must accept Jesus as the Messiah, as the Savior of the world. That He is. But to truly be a follower, you've got to follow the law that Moses gave us, that Jesus attested to. And it would even say to those of them that were Gentile Christians, you must become a Jew in order to be a Christian, circumcision and all. But it's not just circumcision, which was a mighty big step for the men of, that were Gentile that were looking to follow Jesus, but also all of the laws that are in the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, Moses' law, Leviticus, you have to follow that as well. And if you don't follow that, you are not a follower of Christ. Galatians is one of Paul's most poignant and direct attacks on works-based righteousness. He will argue again and again, if you have Jesus, you have enough. That, that, by the way, that's a good place for an amen. If you have Jesus, you have enough, right? And that's his argument throughout the entire book. And he's going to make the argument using Abraham... And Sarah and Hagar at the end of chapter 4. So we're going to start there just briefly and then jump into chapter 5. At the end of chapter 4, Paul again turns to the story of Abraham, an example of right and wrong ways to pursue spiritual growth. If you remember, Abraham was, of course, the biological father of the nation of Israel. But when we first met him in Genesis chapter 12, you would have never thought he would be the biological father of a nation. Why? He doesn't have any kids. It's hard to be the biological father of a nation when you aren't the biological father of anyone. God, if you remember, gave him a promise and says that he was going to have a child, that he would father a nation, that he would bring salvation to the world through this child. All of the nations of the world would be blessed. It's a pretty big promise for a childless octogenarian. But Abraham believes it, and when he does, two things happen. His faith was credited, it says in the New Testament, as righteousness. And secondly, he and Sarah, God begins to work in their lives to bring new life. Paul, in this place, finds a perfect illustration for how we are made new. He starts back in chapter 3, he uses an extended illustration, and he says, just like Abraham, we believe God's promise that God gave to Abraham and then came through Jesus, and that Jesus was what he promised, that faith is credited to us as righteousness, and the spiritual life of regeneration is infused in us. And then at the end of chapter 4, he pulls out another detail and makes the point of what the Galatians were falling into. He says in verse 21, it says, tell me... You who want to be under the law, don't you hear the law? So he says, those of you that want to go back to the law, that you say, I want to follow Christ and the law, don't you remember what's in the law? Verse 22. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave and other by a free woman. But the one by the slave was born as a result of the flesh, while the one by the free woman was born through the promise. And so here's the story. And you just stick with me for just a minute. When Abraham and Sarah believed the promise that God 
would give them a son. She didn't get pregnant immediately with the child. If you remember, if you go back and read Genesis, there was a 25-year gap between when God made the promise and when it was fulfilled. I don't know if any of you here have ever waited 25 years for anything. I've seen some of you when you've had to wait five minutes for your food. So I know that patience isn't the highest virtue. But 25 years is a long time to wait for a son. It'd be a long time. Can you imagine? Um, I mean, Susan and I have almost been married that long. Next year will be our 25th wedding anniversary. We can't imagine. We waited five years before we had Eli, and then sometimes that felt like a long time. Can you imagine newlyweds waiting 25 years? Especially if they wanted children, they were trying. That's a long time to wait. Imagine now that you're in your 70s. I heard a uh-uh pretty boldly back there. Right, I heard that. I see that hand, right? 25 years. So around year 15, one year one, one six months in, Sarah decides it's time to help God out. Now, I'm glad none of you in this room ever decide to help God out in the plans he has for your life. But Sarah did. So she got her household servant, Hagar, who is young and beautiful, and says to Abraham, look, it's clearly not happening with me. This is God's promise to you. Maybe you should have a child with her. Now, here's the crazy thing. She hasn't stopped believing the promise. She still believes God will give them a son. She just thinks it's on her to make it happen, and she's attempting to fulfill God's promise through a scheme of the flesh. So most of you know the story. He has a child with Hagar. By the way, it's interesting there. Abraham doesn't make a counter-argument to the argument from his wife. Shortly thereafter, Hagar gets pregnant. Ishmael grew up to be the father of a nation as well. And he says, what Paul is making the comparison here is, those of you that are trying to return to a works-based righteousness are in essence doing what Sarah did and saying, I trust you, God, but I'm going to do it myself as well. I'm going to hedge my bets. And he's saying that's not what God has called us to do. And he brings out a really important lesson. And this is kind of the, the preamble to the sermon. So this is an extra point on the front end. And he basically is saying we need to understand that God is able to accomplish his promises much more than we are. And he even goes on, and we won't read this, it won't be on the screen, but he basically is saying, listen... <laughs> Rejoicing, a childless woman gave birth to a nation. You would have never thought looking at them at 75 years old, boy, that's going to be the parents of a great nation. But they were. God used them not because of who they were, but in spite of who they were, for His glory, for the sake of His kingdom, for the sake of His name. And the good news for us is He can use you as well. As Zechariah says, not by my might or by power, but by the Spirit of the Lord. And so whether you think you have lots of potential, the good news is God can use you in spite of what you think. 
And if you think you have no potential, God can use you in spite of what you think. It doesn't matter what you bring into the place, whether you come from the most amazing background or your background would make people cringe. Whether you come with all the accolades and awards that have ever been given or whether you come as a dropout who's been in prison and has done things that nobody in this place would believe, God can bring about His promises through you because it's not about you. It's about what God does in and through you in His Spirit. So that's how he ends chapter 4, and he's going to transition to chapter 5. And it's a big transition because we go now to the place where he's going to say, so this is what we do with all of this. This is how we live in all of this. This is what we understand. And he's going to talk about the Spirit particularly. And he starts with this statement and implication that is going to resonate through the rest of it. He says, for freedom Christ set us free. Stand firm then and don't submit again to the yoke of slavery. There are scholars that will say the key word throughout the entire book of Galatians is the word freedom. This idea that we have been set free. The central theological concept, one writer says, of the entire situation that we find ourselves in Christ as followers of His is the word freedom. That being a Christian frees us. It doesn't bind us. It doesn't constrict us. It doesn't prevent us. It frees us up. And he says to them, why would you ever want to go back to a place where you're constrained and constricted and not live in the freedom you've been given? So what does it mean to be free? What does that word mean? It says, for freedom Christ has set us free. By the way, the original language there literally says, it's just four words. Freedom, you, Christ, set free. What's important about that is in the Greek language, they often put the word they wanted to emphasize the most at the beginning of the sentence and the word they wanted to emphasize the second most at the end of the sentence. And in that sentence, you have freedom, you, Christ, Set free. First of all, the re- freedom in our lives means that we are in a relationship with God. That freedom only comes from a vibrant, real relationship with God. Any other substitute in our lives will constrain and constrict and prevent us from experiencing that freedom. Our relationship with God is what frees us. It frees us from the curse and it frees us from the stain of sin in our lives. It frees us from the condemnation that comes from that. It frees us from the guilt and the shame that is happening in our lives. We can live in freedom only because of who Jesus is and what He has done. It is the result of the death of Jesus Christ. We were held captive. We were enslaved by our sin. And Jesus broke the chains of our slavery to sin by being 
crucified on the cross for our sins and rising again from the grave. And because of that, that personal relationship we have with Christ and the rescue and death of Jesus, we can live in freedom. And the way that we do that is that we live through the Spirit of God that He has put in our lives. The Holy Spirit of God that indwells with us. Romans 8, 2 says, Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is... There is... Freedom. We are free to be who God calls us to be and to do what God calls us to do. Now it's going to make very clear here in just a moment. We're going to read about the fact. In fact, the, the end of this chapter is very familiar territory. In fact, it's so familiar, I didn't tell you we were getting there. Because sometimes things are so familiar, they just kind of wash over us or they go in one ear and out the other. But I want you to see the build up towards this very familiar passage that's going to tell us what a life in the Spirit doesn't look like and then what a life in the Spirit does look like. But Paul here in chapter 5 verse 1 says, Remember that it is freedom that Christ sets you free for. Don't go back. In fact, he says, stand firm in the faith. Scholars point out that the phrase stand firm is explicitly a military term. It means fight to stay in the faith. It doesn't mean just to do nothing. It means to hold on to, to fight it. On Wednesday nights in our men's Bible study, which if you're a man in the room and you haven't been coming to our Bible study, we'd invite you to join us this week. We're having a great time. We're studying the book of Hebrews. And it's interesting because in Galatians what's happening is there are some people that want to go back to the law. In Hebrews it's the similar kind of thing. They want to go back to Judaism and forsake what has happened in their life in Christ. And in both places, the writer of Hebrews and Paul basically says, hold on to, stand firm, grasp, fight for your faith. Paul is showing that unless we actively keep ourselves in the faith, we will be in danger of drifting back into a works righteousness, thinking that we are doing something and accomplishing it on our own. Luther, who I mentioned earlier, used to say that we must constantly preach the gospel to ourselves because our hearts are so hardwired for works righteousness. We're like a car that is severely out of alignment. That if you let go of the wheel and you're going down the road, you'll end up in the ditch pretty soon. And you say, well, what does that look like in our current context? What that looks like is people that say that they have been saved by grace and are set free from Christ who then impose on themselves and other peoples a list of litmus tests that says whether or not you're truly a believer. And try to work their way towards favor with God that you can be a good Christian or a bad Christian depending on what you do. Paul lays out for us what it looks like to truly live for the Lord. Look at verse 13 in chapter 5. We're going to read most of this kind of just in a row and then we'll stop and talk a little bit along the way and then give you a couple of things at the end to, to look over. Verse 13, here's that word again. For you are called to be free, brothers and sisters. Only don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but serve one another through love. For the whole law is fulfilled in one statement. Love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out or you will be consumed by one another. In this part, he says, listen, 
You've been set free, but that doesn't mean you're free to take advantage of other people. It doesn't mean that you're free now to live as you want to in the flesh. It doesn't mean that you are free to do whatever you want to. It means you have been set free to be who God has called you to be. And you have been set free to live as God's called you to live. And he says the essence of that, the root of that, the proof of that is love. To love your neighbor as yourself. To serve one another through love. And other places in the New Testament, it will describe this aspect of what we're doing as thinking of others more highly than you think of yourself, of serving others before you serve yourself, of thinking in selfless terms. It's discussion in life, in churches, in our church at times, about what unity looks like. Here's what I know from Scripture. You can't really describe how unity looks all the time, but I can tell you how you get there. The way unity is achieved in churches or any place where people are trying to live for the Lord is that you serve other people and you think of other people's concerns and you care about other people's desires and wants and concerns and needs more than you care about your own. And you serve people that way. And the moment any group of people, any person, the moment any sector, the moment any church begins to worry about what they want or what they need or what they would prefer or what I want or what I need or what I would prefer or why aren't they doing that for me? Why isn't serving me? Why is it not doing that for me? Why am I not getting what I need from right right now? Then you are turning inward and unity is not attainable. Paul says here to the Galatians that... The way that you live in the Spirit, the way that you live in that freedom is it gives you the freedom to be able to serve other people and to love other people and to show them the love of Christ in the midst of that. And so if you're concerned about what your class or your group or your person or your family, and it's all concerned about what you're receiving and what you're getting and if things are being met for you, then you are not working towards unity in any way. It's about serving and loving and caring for others. Verse 16 says, I say then, walk by the Spirit, and you will certainly not carry out the desire of the flesh. The word flesh here is a confusing word. It doesn't mean, as we think about it, like our actual skin. It means this kind of system that is set apart to the works of the Lord and is more concerned about the works of ourselves. He's not saying that our actual body is bad and our soul is good. There are a lot of things that are wicked in the list that Paul is going to list in a minute that go right to the heart and the inner part. They're not bodily things. This sarks or this flesh is the unrenewed part of us that still desires sin. Those parts of our hearts with the Spirit has yet to fill with the resurrection power that He is enduing in us. Verse 17, for the flesh desires what is against the spirit and the spirit desires what is against the flesh. They're opposed to each other so that you don't do what you want. Think about Paul's statement in Romans where he says, what I want to do, I do not do. And what I do not want to do, I do. Verse 18, but if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. And then Paul is going to show us The difference between a life lived for the Lord in freedom and one that is not. Verse 19, the works of the flesh are obvious. He gives 16 characteristics 
Some have called the decaying fruits of the flesh. And he groups them in separate groups. The first three are sexual because our depravity often reveals itself more in this area than any other, especially in the day in which we live. And so he lists three. Sexual immorality means um, sexual relations with anyone that is not married, unmarried people, outside of marriage, whatever that may be. Moral impurity, which is unnatural, and promiscuity, which is uncontrolled. The next two words deal with corrupted religion that comes out of the depraved heart. Idolatry, where you love things other than God, more than God. And sorcery, when you try to manipulate God through good luck charm or ritual or some word of faith teaching. Paul next gives eight words that describe relational conflicts. Hatred, strife, jealousy, outburst of anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, and envy. All of those work against relationships. And finally, three words that refer to substance abuse, drunkenness, carousing, and anything similar. Anything where you need a bit of a hit of a release of dopamine, whether that comes from alcohol, drugs, pornography, impulse buying, eating, getting likes on Facebook. The point is your soul feels dead, empty, and bored and needs to be made alive again by the hit that comes from something in your life. Paul then says, I'm warning you about all these things as I warned you before so that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. It says practice there, it means habitual practice, not infrequent. It's talking about unrepented, habitual, regular walking in things that are not of the Lord, delighting in them, pursuing them instead of the kingdom of God. Paul says that's not what living in freedom looks like. So it's not freedom to exercise your license in any way you want. In contrast to that, he gives us the verse that almost everybody in here has, well, everybody's heard. Many of you know Right? But the fruit of the Spirit love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self control. Oh, oh. I learned it in a song. That's how I, every time I say it, it comes back in a song. The law is not against such things. It's interesting because in verse 22, there would be people. That would argue if this was just an English sentence that you wrote on a paper for a professor that you did not follow good subject verb agreement. Y'all remember that, right? From grammar. Because it says the fruit is and then list several. Shouldn't it be the fruits are? But the point of this passage is that you cannot disconnect one of these from the other and that this is the totality of what it means to live in light of the Spirit. Love. Agape is the word. It's first to show its its priority in the list. There are those that think that the fruit of the Spirit is love and that love plays itself out in the rest of the list. Genuine love towards God is the greatest treasure and love for others is the result of that. Joy, delight in God, the sheer beauty of His presence. It's, the, it's, it's not circumstantial happiness, it is joy. 
peace, wholeness. When our soul feels at rest in the control of a loving, sovereign God. Patience, the ability to face trouble or setbacks without getting into despair or blowing up in anger. Allowing for things in our lives out of our control to delay us and not get fired up mad about it. Because you trust in God's loving and perfect plan for you. Kindness. Taking care of others, even when it costs you goodness, integrity. Same person through and through when the lights are on and when the lights are off. Faithfulness, consistent loyalty to say and do what is right, even when it's inconvenient or unpopular. Gentleness, self-forgetfulness or humility is the idea behind it. In the words of C.S. Lewis, it's not thinking less of yourself as much as it's thinking of yourself less. And self-control, the ability to bring whatever desire under the control of God's will. Nine things that describe the character of the Christian. And at the end, he says, the law is not against such things. It's kind of a cheeky little comment there that is the idea that people that live like this don't need laws. No one gets put in jail for being too good or too kind or too self-controlled. So what do we learn from all of that? What does spirit-filled living look like? The first thing that we see is that healthy fruit comes from a life connected to the Spirit. Another way to say that is you don't grow healthy fruit by focusing on the fruits. It naturally happens when we are connected to the deep and healthy relationship with the Spirit of God. There's some of you that even as I read that list in your mind, you started doing the checklist of pretty good at that, all right at that, could work on that, not so great there. Yeah, blew up yesterday at the uh, McDonald's drive-thru, need to work on that. Like you start running through the checklist in your mind, right? And what we naturally want to do when that happens is, and you know what I need to do? I need to fix that. I need to be more loving. I need to be more caring. I need to be more kind. And so I'm going to start doing that. I'm so bad at this. I need to start doing this. Or I need to start doing that. I need to work in there. And the point of this passage is not that that's how we fix it. The way we fix it is to dive deeper into understanding of who God is. We immerse ourselves in the Spirit of God and we learn to walk with Him more. The wrong strategy for spiritual growth is trying to do all the things. As someone said, you don't put, if, if your life, if you're, if you're not engaged in that, you're not living in Christ, in the Spirit of God connected to Him, then you don't just put a brand new flower on the edge of it and act like everything's okay. You have to get to the problems of the roots. Here's another lesson that we learned from this passage, and this one's, hard you are only as mature as your most immature fruit i played golf one time with a guy named mickey wolf who is a golf pro at a um went to union with him he played golf at union and then we we know him and my father-in-law knows him hey we're gonna go play golf with mickey and um i got on the first tee and at that particular time in my life i could not hit a driver to save my life and so i hit a five iron off the first tee and striped it 215 down the center. It looked awesome. 
And I said, man, that's awesome, man. That is true. I did that. And I got up to my, look over my second shot. It was about 150. Had a seven iron in my hand. And Mickey said something right before my shot that I did not like. Because I, I, I felt pretty good about that first one. Like, man, I, I ripped that one. I mean, it looked like a professional golf shot from a guy that doesn't play golf but once every couple of months. And I stood over it and I say, Mickey, I mean, you play with a lot of guys. How can you tell how good a guy is? Like, how can you tell? Man, that guy's good. He said, I judge a golfer based on his worst shot in the round. That's not what I want to hear. I want you to think about that shot I just hit. Not my worst, because there were worse shots coming. I uh, hit the next shot about 15 yards when I was trying to hit it 150. It took a huge divot out because he was in my head now about my worst shot. Chunked a few, few in the bunker, couple in the water. And at the end of the round, I felt really bad about myself. Like, I thought I was doing good on that first shot, right? Like, I, as, a, as somebody that plays out, like, I judge my round on the best shot I hit that day. He looks at it and says, I think about the worst shot they hit. That's how I judge how good they are. One of the things that I often do with the fruit of the Spirit and go, man, at least I'm nailing that. But Scripture makes it, it's the fruit. It's all together. And whatever you're weakest at is your level of maturity. Some of us are just better at some things because of the personality we have. I mean, I've met people before that are just by nature kind of stoic and let things roll off their back and are pretty patient, but they're not joyful or kind. I've met some people that are very faithful, including speaking truth when it needs to be spoken, but they're not loving in how they do it at all. That may just mean that those are your personality traits and you're leaning into that. But where Jesus is, the fruits grow as one. When He is there, you are bold and kind, gentle and compassionate, patient and joyful. You are only as mature as your most immature fruit. And so when you observe an area where you are fruitless in your life, again, don't go work on the fruit. Ask God how connecting to the Spirit will help you to apply that to your life. Daily pray that God would show you those things and help develop that inside of you. And then get into a small group. Because one of the things that I've discovered in my life that is in small groups and accountability settings is where people are able to point out to me those areas of my life that are not where they need to be. And then here's the last thing and then we're done. Walk in the Spirit. You want to know how to stop the things that you don't want in your life, the things that are bringing you down, the things, the familiar sins that are hurting you? Scripture tells us to walk in the Spirit. Verse 16 that we read says, I say then walk by the Spirit and you will certainly not carry out the desire of the flesh. Notice the order. Not escape the lust of the flesh and then you'll be filled with the Spirit Not avoid these sins and then God will let you be filled with the Spirit. Paul says, walk in the Spirit comes first. Without the Spirit, you'll never conquer the lust of the flesh. By the way, the word in verse 16 for desire is a Greek word that means inordinate craving. Where you feel like you need something to be alive. 
You will not carry out this temptation that is there. It goes back to the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve first sinned, they were stripped of their love and acceptance of God, so their souls felt naked. And naked souls look for something, something to fill it. We crave it. Blaise Pascal, who wrote a couple of centuries ago, said, Without God, our souls are like a gigantic vacuum. And we look for anything in our lives to fill that. And until we are walking in the Spirit, it will never be filled. So how do we release that in us? First of all, we remind ourselves daily that when Jesus declared on the cross, it is finished, it is finished. And the first time we believed, He made us as if we had never sinned before. And we can live in the freedom of that. We soak ourselves in the love of Jesus. We realize that the fruits of the Spirit are descriptions of who Christ has been to us. He showed us the greatest act of love in the history of mankind when He sacrificed Himself for us. He showed us that He is our joy. He wouldn't let His joy be complete until we were included in it. He was willing to endure the pain because we were His joy, as it says in Hebrews chapter 12. He is our peace because He wouldn't be at peace until He purchased our peace. He trusted the Father even when the Father sent Him to the cross. He is an example of patience. When he could have walked away many times for me, and yet time after time, he has stood with me. He is the epitome of kindness. Not turning away anyone in need. He weeps with us in our pain. He hurts with us where we hurt. In Hebrews, it describes us that we have a high priest, a God. We have Jesus who is able to sympathize with every part of who we are. He is good all the time, and all the time He is good. He is faithful. Even when we're not, He has always told us the truth. He has never given up on us. He is faithful to the end. He is gentle with us. There has never been anyone in the history of the world who had more right to punish and to be angry and to chastise me And there has never been anyone in the history of the world who has been more gentle with me than my Savior. And He is self-controlled. I think about His temptation in the wilderness. I think about Him in the Garden of Gethsemane. I'm thinking about Him before Pilate, before Caiaphas. He could have spoken a word. On the cross, He could have called angels down. And yet, He controlled it for me. And for you. And now, His Spirit, the Spirit of the living God, the Holy Spirit, is living in me. Which means, if you're going to memorize the list of the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, don't memorize it as a list to do. Memorize it as a list of a description of who Jesus has been for you. And what he is making you into. The Holy Spirit makes this love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self control. The Lord, Holy Spirit makes this happen in you through faith.
Trust in Him. Believe in Him. Dive deep into relationship with Christ and He will form that in you. By the way, those of us that are believers in Christ, we will get there someday. He has started a work that He will bring to completion in our lives. I'd sure like to get there sooner rather than later and allow Him to do the work. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the love You have shown us and for the way that You have taken away the need for us to earn anything. We can't earn anything when it comes to You. That You are loving, faithful God no matter what we have done or who we have become. But Lord, we pray that today You would help us to live our lives walking in the Spirit, walking in Your love, trusting in who You are for us and seeing that development happen in us. Lord, I pray that today You would give us the ability just to trust in You. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.